hope space for George Floyd's family. We're grateful that they get this moment and we share this moment with them. Demonstrators marched in Pittsburgh to honor the life of George Floyd on Tuesday after a jury convicted former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin on murder charges. But activists say there's more work to be done. We do not forget that this movement is not about individuals, that this movement is about systemic change. We'll also check in on Allegheny County Council's efforts to create an independent police review board and look at why the city is testing out a new way of tearing down abandoned buildings. It's Friday, April 23rd, and this is Pittsburgh Explainer. I'm your host, Liz Reed. First, to Tuesday's response to the Chauvin verdict, WESA reporter Kylie Kaczynski was there and has been covering ongoing organizing efforts in Pittsburgh for nearly a year. Hi, Kylie. Hey, Liz. So as soon as we heard that the jury reached a verdict, you headed to Freedom Corner in the Hill District, where you knew people planned to gather. Um, Can you talk about how people reacted when they heard the news? Yeah, there was not cheering when the news came in. People were huddled in little groups around phones, streaming various media reports, carrying the verdict live. I was huddled with a couple of people waiting for the announcement. And once the guilties started rolling in, there were some nods, maybe a few claps, but no cheering. Uh, Once the jury declared Chauvin guilty on all counts, it was more like a wash of relief on people's faces, but not a lot of audible response. I spoke with a few people there who said, you know, this verdict is what they want but it doesn't bring George Floyd back. People said this was a sliver of justice, but there's a lot more work to do in this racial reckoning the country is seeing right now. So these groups have been at the heart of protests in Pittsburgh since George Floyd was killed last May. And you reported a piece that aired this week about the work they've been doing since last summer. What's been happening? Yeah, there were a dozen or more activist groups present on Tuesday, but two young groups, Pittsburgh I Can't Breathe and Black Young and Educated, were there too. Three of the leaders of those groups fronted the march that uh, went through the Hill District uptown in Oakland. I spoke with them recently about what the last year has been like as they find their footing in in the space of activism in Pittsburgh. Both groups are shifting a bit of their focus toward mutual aid efforts. Uh, Black Young and Educated handed out food, water, and stimulus information to people experiencing homelessness recently. And Pittsburgh I Can't Breathe has been hosting food drives. Uh, They've been collecting rent relief donations. um, And they helped the Alliance for Police Accountability collect signatures to get two criminal justice initiatives on the May primary ballot. One would limit the use of solitary confinement at the Allegheny County Jail, and the other would ban no-knock search warrants by Pittsburgh police. You know, there have been calls nationwide to ban no-knock search warrants in the aftermath of the Breonna Taylor case. What is your sense of these groups' plan for the future? The two groups I spoke with have long-term plans to keep educating their following online about racism, criminal justice issues, and things like that. They're both also focused on finding and sharing resources for Black mental health care. You know, marching through the streets for four or five hours a day, several days a week last summer, really took a toll on a lot of people's physical and mental health. And watching these violent videos of people dying also can really affect a person's mind. So both Black Young and Educated and Pittsburgh I Can't Breathe are focused on that and establishing themselves as a resource for their peers to learn how to be and and make the change that they want to see. Kylie, thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks, Liz. We'll be right back after a quick break. 
weekday mornings at 9, tune in to Confluence for conversations with innovators and difference makers. From the new U.S. Attorney, to the Superintendent of Pittsburgh Public Schools, to the Artistic Director of the Pittsburgh Public Theater. Plus, discussions about critical issues, including cybersecurity and community police relations. The Confluence, where the news comes together, weekday mornings at 9 on 90.5 WESA. Moments before the jury announced its verdict in Minneapolis, local officials pushed forward a proposal to create more police oversight in Allegheny County. WESA's Onley Herring covers county council and is here now. Hi, Onley. Hi, thanks for having me. What's the latest on this bill? Well, it's out of committee, so it's on its way back to the full council for a vote. The Public Safety Committee had discussed the bill over a number of weeks and was closely divided on it. It ultimately voted four to three to approve it. Now, if the full 15-member council does the same, this bill will create a nine-member board with the power to investigate allegations of police misconduct. So the idea of an independent police review board has been talked about for quite a long time. How long has this been in the works? The whole conversation started with the fatal police shooting of Antoine Rose in the summer of 2018. Many listeners will remember that that sparked weeks of protests throughout the city. And Rose was a black 17-year-old from Rankin who was shot in East Pittsburgh by a white officer, Michael Rosfeld. And that shooting led to this discussion about a police review board. Council held several public hearings on the issue in 2018, but ultimately the idea was defeated in 2019 when council voted against it. But Democrat DeWitt Walton reintroduced the exact same legislation at the start of council's session last year. Since then, it's undergone quite a bit of revision, and now the bill that council is considering is the third version of of this bill. And County Executive Rich Fitzgerald's office actually helped to craft this version, and it is the, the least sweeping of the three proposals. Okay, so help me understand how the proposal has changed over time and what's in the latest version. Well, there have been a number of changes. I can highlight some of them. Uh, one would get rid of what was called a limited opt-in provision. That would have allowed municipalities to ask the board to review their law enforcement practices and policies because legally only the Allegheny County Police Department can be required to participate in the board, municipalities, and the county sheriff would have to opt in. So this limited opt-in option would give the board, like I said, um, authority to review local police departments' uh, policies and practices, but it would not subject individual officers in those municipalities to investigation by the board. Another provision would give uh, County Executive Rich Fitzgerald more appointments to the board. Before he had three of the nine, this latest legislation gives him four, with council appointing another four, and then choosing a ninth joint appointment in cooperation with the executive's office. Uh, the, The proposal also adds an informal resolution process that would precede any official inquiry by the board 
and there are stiffer training requirements for board members. Essentially, this proposal, like I said, is scaled back from earlier versions, and the the main objective is to make sure that it gets the support of a majority of council members and avoids a veto by Fitzgerald. Okay, so that was my next question. I mean, it, it got voted out of committee this week. Um, when will a final vote happen and does it have the support it would need to pass? Well, that's actually a rather controversial question. The vote could happen this upcoming Tuesday when the full council next meets. But there's a public hearing on the bill that's scheduled for the following day, Wednesday the 28th. So that generated some rather heated discussion during this week's committee meeting about the bill. Some want to wait until after the public hearing to hold the vote. Others say we've waited long enough. Likely the counselors are discussing this scheduling conflict among themselves, and the agenda for next Tuesday's meeting could offer some clues about the time frame they settle on, but we won't know for sure until the meeting takes place. As to whether this legislation will pass, uh, that's very much an open question still, I think. Um, the composition of council has changed quite a bit since the, the bill was first defeated back in 2019. We have a couple more progressive members and one Republican was unseated by a Democrat. So things could go differently this time. Regardless, I would expect it to be a, a close vote. Anli, thanks for covering this. Yeah, thank you. We'll be right back with one more story you need to know about after another quick break. Improve your morning scroll by subscribing to WESA's Inbox Edition, our daily email that pulls together headlines from our region, state, and nation to give you all the context you need to start the day. You'll find updates from our newsroom on the coronavirus pandemic, local government, arts and culture, and the environment, as well as stories from NPR. No Pittsburgh better. Subscribe today at WESA.FM slash Inbox Edition. Finally this week, we've got WESA reporter Margaret J. Krause, who covers transportation and development. Hi, Margaret. Hello. What did you report on this week? I had the pleasure of reporting on a new city initiative called Deconstruction. Um, the idea is to try out this alternative to demolition. So instead of rolling into a neighborhood and bashing a structure to the ground, a crew of people would dismantle the house piece by piece. So bricks and timber, shingles, lots of the materials can be salvaged and resold. And what can't be reused would be clean enough to recycle. Where did they get this idea from? Uh, there are a bunch of places around the country that already have deconstruction policies on the books. There's Sarasota, Florida, San Antonio, Texas, uh, Seattle. But really, a lot of this actually comes from a Pittsburgher who for a long time has pushed for the city to allow salvage. Uh, Mike Gable leads Construction Junction, which is a large building material reuse warehouse and a, I think a fan favorite here in Pittsburgh. Um, and since at least the late 90s, Gable has tried to get city permission to save building materials from places they were already going to knock down. So this seems like it would take a lot longer than just bringing the wrecking ball through. And Pittsburgh has a lot of vacant and abandoned homes, as as you've reported on. So what what would the city say in response to this fact that it's just going to take a lot longer to deal with these blighted properties? Deconstruction does take longer. And Pittsburgh does have roughly 1,700 condemned uninhabitable buildings. 
The hope, though, is that this provides an alternative to the longstanding policy of emergency demolitions, so just bringing down buildings that pose an imminent threat. And those funds are pretty limited. So they have to do some fundraising for deconstruction, but the idea is that it would be additional money to deal with the problem. It's also a shift. It continues this shift in how city inspectors approach condemned buildings. So instead of a binary of tear down or don't tear down, there's a more nuanced assessment. Does the building have historical significance? Could the building be saved if you know there were an investment made in it? If not, is it a good candidate for deconstruction? So it may speed up dealing with the problem because there could be additional money in the future, but it also is just allows some more options to be on the table. Also, there are just a lot of follow-on benefits, so the hope is that this will create low-barrier jobs, and while it could be more expensive, they're still working out exactly how much or if that's always the case, it has the potential to save costs by not just sending materials to a landfill and also having materials that could be resold. Can you talk about the, the kind of impact that vacant, abandoned properties have on neighborhoods? Yeah. So I actually spoke with a woman who lives in Hazelwood after I filed the story. And she's lived next to an abandoned house for a lot of years, since the late 90s. And one winter, it was really cold. A pipe burst. And at first, she thought the pipe was in her house, when in fact, it was in this abandoned house next door. There's, you know, rats, um, the weeds. It's a connected row home. So the weeds, uh, if she didn't take care of them, would just grow onto her property. Uh, you know, no one would be shoveling the snow at this vacant house. So she's kind of adopted it just because if she doesn't do anything, it just makes her life worse. And I heard from a 311 response line representative who gets, she estimates, a call a day about an abandoned home that it's kind of this starting point for even bigger problems. People often call because there's a rat infestation or there's a raccoon infestation, but it also invites you know, people just feel sad living next to these buildings. Research shows that people who live on blocks with abandoned homes experience higher rates, higher blood pressure rates, higher rates of depression, and just feelings of hopelessness. I think, you know, it looks like nobody cares. Um, and that's really tough for people. So uh, when will this new deconstruction policy um, go into effect? The city wants to identify 10 structures that are good candidates for deconstruction by the fall, and then the hope is to start then dismantling them. And also, I wasn't able to include this in the story, but deconstruction sort of seems like the tip of the iceberg because the question kind of behind that is how can the city prevent buildings from slipping toward demolition or deconstruction in the first place? Um, Mayor Bill Peduto says one way is to invest in programs that seal the buildings, but the tough thing is the city only owns about 20% of the condemned buildings. And acquiring an abandoned house or really any real estate in the city right now is extremely time consuming and expensive. So for the vast majority of homes that are kind of falling apart, anyone who would want to in the future try to acquire it and turn it around, they can't go put on a new roof or board up the windows because it's a liability issue. So there are these larger discussions happening about like, how do we prevent even more places from needing to end up on these lists. Thanks for your reporting, Margaret. Hey, thank you. That's Pittsburgh Explainer for this week. Our show was edited and produced by Lucy Perkins. Thanks for listening. Let's talk next week.